Walter McMillan. He was an African-American man who lived in Monroeville, Alabama. In 1988, he was unjustly convicted of the murder of a white woman, Rhonda Morrison. You see, he was innocent. Nowhere near the crime scene. But the police were bent on framing and convicting him. At the trial, false testimonies against Robert were given, and irrefutable evidence of his innocence was suppressed. You see, the police and the governing authorities, they wanted to frame and condemn Walter, an innocent man, vilified and charged as a criminal, condemning him to the death penalty. You see, those who should have sought justice actually perverted it. They condemned an innocent man. And it's sad when these things happen in our criminal justice system. And it's also sad when these things happen among the religious leaders. For in our passage this morning, we will see the Sanhedrin do similar things. But they won't do it to a mere man. Instead, they would do it to the Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is innocent and sinless, yet they rejected him and condemned him to die. And so Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72, please stand for the reading of God's word. They led Jesus away to the high priest's And all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they couldn't find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a, little while, while those, after a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them, since you're also a Galilean. 
Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may be seated. So for this morning, our big idea for this passage is this. Jesus is rejected and condemned to die. Jesus is rejected and condemned to die. And in this section, we will see three scenes. First, we will see false accusations. And then we will see a faithful declaration. And third, we'll see a faithless denial. False accusations, a faithful declaration, and a faithless denial. And so for context, last time we were in Mark, Jesus predicted the desertion of his disciples and Peter's denial. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed and he submitted himself to the Father's will to drink the cup of his wrath. Afterwards, he was betrayed by Judas, arrested by the mob, and deserted by his disciples as he predicted. And so our passage picks up here where we left off. And so the first scene, we will see false accusations. You see, this mob, they took Jesus to Caiaphas, his house. And Caiaphas was the high priest during that time. And the Sanhedrin, they had gathered for a trial that was prearranged. This trial was pre-planned by the Sanhedrin. And the trial took place at night so they could hastily reach a verdict in order for the Romans to execute Jesus. You see, during that time, Rome ruled. The Jews, they had religious freedom. They also had the freedom where they could conduct the trial. But they did not have the authority to execute someone. The governor had that authority. And so here, they're trying to expedite the trial. And Jesus, he was deserted by his disciples, but one followed from afar. You see, Peter loved Jesus. But at that time, Peter loved his safety, and his comfort more. You see, he was close enough to see the action, but he was far away enough to not be caught in association with Jesus because he didn't want to suffer like Jesus. Look at verses 55 and 56. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any, for many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. You see, the Sanhedrin, they wanted to execute Jesus, and it was no secret. We've seen this throughout Mark's gospel. Think back to chapter 3, verse 6. Think about chapter 11, verse 18, chapter 12, verse 12, and chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. It's repeatedly being said that they want to arrest and kill Jesus. You see, the Sanhedrin had this hostile disposition towards him, because they hated him. Their hearts were hard, and so they rejected him, and they wanted to eliminate him. 
And so they requested the presence of eyewitnesses. And the reason is because of the law, in the law, a charge is established on a testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 says, The one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. So they've sought eyewitnesses. But did you notice the kind of testimonies they wanted? It says they were looking for a testimony against Jesus to put him to death. You see, they wanted to kill him. Before the trial started, a verdict has already been rendered. They just, needed the, they just needed the means to justify their intended ends. You see, they don't want justice. They want Jesus dead. And as you catch that, many were complicit in the pursuit of Jesus' condemnation. It says that many gave false testimonies. They lied. You see, the very ones who claimed to love God were sinning against God by breaking the law of God. You see, the commands, the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Command is that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And here, we see them bearing false witness against Jesus, the very one who gave the law. You see, they are laboring for the death of the author of life. And now we see a specific testimony. Look at verses 57 and 58. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree. Now some of you may be wondering, how is that a false testimony? Like, I think I've read Jesus say some of those very words somewhere in the Gospels. You see, it's very similar to what Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19. But it's labeled false because of the details of the charge. You see, Jesus didn't actually say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. You see, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. But the thing is that when Jesus said it, he wasn't referring to a physical building. He was referring to his body. You see, through Jesus, God's presence was in bodily form because he was the word made flesh. God the Son incarnate, the one who created man, became man. And he fulfilled this promise through his death and resurrection. You see, Jesus didn't actually promise to destroy the temple, but he did predict its destruction. Think about Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. When the disciples were enamored by the temple and Jesus predicted that no stone will be left on top of another. And did you guys catch? The charge didn't stick because it had discrepancies. It says, yet their testimony did not agree even on this. It wasn't credible. Another false accusation. You see, in this section, you have accusation after accusation, and you have none standing. 
You see, in this section, you have a repetition of key phrases like testimony, false testimony against him, and did not agree. You see, the Sanhedrin could not find a credible charge against Jesus. Every effort proved futile. And nothing stuck because they didn't know who they had on trial. You see, this wasn't a guilty mob boss who effectively destroyed all evidence, who paid off their accusers, who threatened their witnesses, who corrupted the jury, who hired the best lawyer, who crossed all his T's and dotted his I's. You see, those things happen, but it didn't happen here. You see, what they're dealing with is the Son of God, the very one who declared himself to be the truth. He is the sinless one. No charge was established against him because no sin was ever committed by him. You see, everything that Jesus has said was true. Everything that he did, both private and public, was good and right. And every motive he had was pure. You see, he has broken no law. He's committed no sin. He's the only one who perfectly loved God and neighbor at every moment of his life. You see, here we see that an attempt to oppose Jesus with credible reasons is to stand on sinking sand. There are no grounds. You see, no one can truly discredit Jesus. The Sanhedrin has tried. Charles Darwin tried to dismantle him. The Enlightenment philosophers, they tried to demolish him. Postmodernists have tried to cancel him. Richard Dawkins couldn't overthrow him. The Hebrew Israelites can't subvert him. You see, every effort has proven and will prove futile. You see, no one has ever nor will ever have credible reason to reject and condemn the Son of God. You see, beloved, no one rejects Jesus because of lack of evidence. Instead, they reject him because of their own depravity and hardness of heart, where they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You see, the reality is their minds were made up before they searched for justification. And the search is futile. It is as futile as searching Jesus' tomb to find his body. You see, there is no evidence to condemn him, but there is irrefutable and overwhelming evidence to believe in him and trust in him. But this wasn't their goal. They weren't trying to acquit or exonerate Jesus. Instead, they were trying to condemn him. And so the trial persisted. And though knowing that he would be condemned, Jesus spoke and made a faithful declaration, which is what we will see in the next scene. You see, in verses 60 and 61, Caiaphas, the high priest, he took the lead in the interrogation, and he asked two questions. The first, he said, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? You see, he wanted Jesus to speak in order to exploit Jesus. It is some form of self-incrimination. 
And we do this ourselves when we try to get people to speak so that we can trap them in their words. And this is what Pilate, not Pilate, but this is what Caiaphas was trying to do. And Jesus was silent. Now, why would Jesus say anything? The testimonies were false. These folks were falling on their own sword. Jesus just sit there and watch them, let him do it. But Jesus was silent because he was innocent. And his silence fulfilled what Scripture says about the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. You see, the be- beloved, the reality is when you know the truth, you don't have to get riled up in defense. You don't have to revile in return. Instead, we know that God is sovereign, that he sees it, and so we can trust him and aim to honor him, knowing that he will judge. So may we trust God, stay calm, and speak the truth. Caiaphas asked the second question. He said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? You see, in their minds, this question would make or break the trial. You see, if Jesus were to say yes, they would charge him with blasphemy. If Jesus was to say no, they'd throw out the case. You see, Caiaphas is asking Jesus, what does he say about himself? Who does Jesus say he is? How will Jesus respond? Verse 62, I am, said Jesus. You see, in this moment, he didn't remain silent. He didn't evade the question, nor did he deny his identity. In fact, this is the first time in Mark where he publicly confessed his identity. He declared himself to be the promised and long-awaited messianic king. He declared that he is the son of God, the one who is equal in authority and essence to God the Father, the very one who is without beginning and no end, who has always been. Jesus says that he is the son. And he declared his identity, and he gave a promise. He said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. You see, he quotes Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. It was a messianic prophecy that states, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, here Jesus declared that that messianic psalm is about him, that he would be exalted, seated in glory at the right hand of God the Father. You see, in glory, at the right hand, on that throne, there was an RSVP card on that glorious seat, and no one else could sit there, not us not our politicians, not the President of the United States. For all of us are unfit and unqualified to sit there because we are sinners. We're not the Son. We're not the Savior. We're the very ones who need to be saved by Him. And He alone would occupy that seat where He currently rules and reigns as the Messianic King where he rules over heaven and earth. 
where he reigns with God in the kingdom of God. And his reign is glorious. The angels bow before him. The saints worship him. Creation submits to him, and his enemies will be subdued by him. You see, his name is the name that is above every name. And his enemies will be his footstool. You see, Jesus said that they will witness his exaltation. But y'all, Jesus didn't stop there. He said, and you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. This was another messianic prophecy, which we read in the scripture reading from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. As I said earlier, a couple of months ago, I believe that this refers to Jesus' enthronement, where he'd be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, where nations worship him. And Jesus is saying that he fulfills both prophecies. They testify to his person and his work. You see, as Jesus says this, beloved, don't miss this. Jesus speaks to his vindication. You see, as I said earlier, Walter McMillan, he was wrongfully convicted of murder, and he was innocent. Well, years after the conviction, Brian Stevenson appealed the verdict, reopened the case, and proved Walter's innocence. You see, though Walter was vilified by police and the authorities, he was vindicated. Well, in this section, in this verse, Jesus boldly declares that he will be vindicated. You see, though he was vilified by man, he would be vindicated by God. You see, he is who he says he is. And the proof is that he would be exalted and enthroned by God and he will reign over man. You see, what Jesus says in this verse is that his present experience would not be his end. You see, though he would be condemned as a criminal, crucified on the cross, where he would bear the judgment for our sins, making atonement and saving us, he would resurrect from the grave. You see, it doesn't end with Jesus being hung on a cross and placed in a tomb but the tomb would be removed, he would resurrect, and he is seated at the right hand of the glory of God, where he reigns, and one day he will return. You see, don't miss this. His suffering was the vehicle that took him to the destination of exaltation and enthronement. Let me say that again in case you missed it. His suffering was the vehicle that took him to the destination of his exaltation and enthronement. It would be the very means by which that he would be exalted and enthroned. You see, Jesus is exalted and enthroned now. He came into power, and it wasn't by conquering but dying, not through power but weakness, not by war but sacrifice. It was his humiliation that led to his exaltation. And the scriptures will say it this way, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and that includes the Sanhedrin. And every tongue will confess, and that includes the Sanhedrin, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, he is the one who we love. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who is worthy of worship. For he has saved us through his humiliation, where he bore our sin on that cross. And by his grace, we have been brought into his kingdom. See, the king who currently reigns, he will return. And when he returns, he will judge. The very ones who he stood before will stand before him. The very ones who judged him, he will judge. You see, beloved, look at how Jesus viewed himself as the son of God in human flesh. The one who is worthy of obedience and worship. You see, false religions, they would say that Jesus isn't the Son of God. They would, in fact, say that he never claimed to be the Son. Well, here and other places throughout the gospel, he clearly declares himself to be the Son. Some would say that he is only a good teacher. Well, he taught and demonstrated that he is God. You see, in the words of C.S. Lewis, Jesus is either a liar a lunatic, or he's Lord. And did you catch how Jesus viewed himself as Lord? And so how one responds to Jesus is paramount. One has only two options. You either receive him as Lord and Savior, or you reject him and you oppose him. You see, to receive him is to have eternal life, to be forgiven of sins, to have salvation. It may and it does result in temporal suffering for his name, but everyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. In fact, the scripture says that all who take refuge in him are happy. And all who have trusted in Christ, we know that happiness now, and it will last for all of eternity. And so if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad that you are here. Friends, did you hear what Jesus said about himself? He declares himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That he was exalted and enthroned after he died and resurrected from the grave. It testifies to his person and work. See, these are bold claims, and they have eternal ramifications. So I'm wondering, how is this landing on you? Because the claims beckon a response. And the only proper response is to turn from your rebellion and trust in Jesus. That's the only way that you will be saved. And so if you want to talk more about what does it mean to trust in Jesus, you want to talk more about what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God, friends, you can talk to any of the members after service. We love having conversations about Jesus. 
You see in this passage, this verse in particular, Jesus declared himself to be the son of God, the messianic king, the one whom Israel has been anticipating and waiting for and hoping for. Now you would think, or you would hope rather, that there would be a revival, that the courts would close, that all would fall on their face in repentance, that they would worship him. But let's see what actually happened. Look at verse 63 through 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. You see, here we see utter rejection. They didn't believe him to be the Messiah, but a blasphemer. And this is a serious charge. You see, to blaspheme, it meant to dishonor God by diminishing his majesty or depriving him of the rights that he is entitled. And so when they said they believed Jesus to be blaspheming, what, they, what they're getting at is that they believe Jesus is blaspheming because he ascribed God's honor to himself that he equated himself to God. And according to Leviticus chapter 24, the consequence of blasphemy is death. You see, the jury condemned Jesus. And y'all, it happened as Jesus sovereignly predicted. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. You see, the Son of God has already predicted it. He's in control at that very moment. It happened according to God's will. You see, they charged Jesus of blasphemy. But the question is, did he actually commit blasphemy? No, not at all. You see, you remember at his baptism and at his transfiguration, the Father declared Jesus to be the Son. This, his mighty acts attest to his identity. You see, according to Scripture, the Messiah would give sight to the blind. He would make the lame walk. He would make the mute speak. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, he did all of this. But also God has the authority to forgive sins. You remember Mark chapter 2? He told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and he demonstrated his authority by making him walk. Now, remember Mark chapter 5, where Jesus raised Jairus' daughter? Remember Mark chapter 6, how he fed the 5,000 with a few fish and five loaves of bread? Mark chapter 6, how he walked on water. You want to backtrack to Mark chapter 4, how he caused the storm to cease by speaking. Should I keep going? I'll keep going. Think about Mark chapter 5 where he made the demons speak, I mean, not speak, but be silent. Beloved, Jesus is God, the Son of God in human flesh. And yet they have condemned him as a criminal. They beat him in support of the verdict. But this also was in fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. 
I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. You see, they condemned and beat Jesus. Beloved, have you ever wondered what would totally depraved people do if they ever got their hands on God? Wonder no more. You see, we see it here. They are beating him. They've rejected him. They want to kill him. You see, they did to Jesus physically what people have always done spiritually. They've rejected him and tried to end him and rid themselves of him. This is what totally depraved people do to the Son of God. And before we look down on them, the reality is that was once true of us. You see, we, at one time, we hated God. We wanted nothing to do with him. But God, in his love and mercy, shone light into our hearts. God opened our eyes and saved us by his grace. And so, beloved, when we see people have contempt towards Jesus, may we respond with humility, knowing that that was once true of us. May we respond with compassion. And may we pray for the Lord to have the same mercy on them that he had on us. You see, though Jesus was on trial, he faithfully declared the truth. And despite his consequences, he still spoke. He suffered. He suffered well. And beloved, this is an example for us. You see, when suffering for doing good, how do you respond? When you were slandered by coworkers or a friend or family, do you repay evil for evil? Or do you give thought to do what's honorable to God and entrust oneself to him? You see, Christ is our example even in this. Well, in the passage, Jesus wasn't the only one who was questioned. Peter was also questioned. And now let's see how Peter responded. We see the third scene of a faithless denial. You see, the end of the section focuses on Peter. He followed from afar. As I said earlier, he was close enough to see the action, but he was far back enough to avoid association. Beloved, how many of us do the same thing at times? Well, we're close enough to fit in with fellow Christ followers as we should. But we're far back enough to not stand out when we're around non-Christians. That we want to avoid association with Jesus so that we won't suffer for the name of Jesus. How many of us try to dim the light so that we won't be spotted? Here we see an apostle is doing that very thing. The one in the previous section who was a big talker, he has become a scaredy cat. The professed courageous one has become a coward. The one who confessed that he would die with Jesus has denied him. Look at verses 66 and 67. 
While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maid servants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. You see, here Peter was questioned, but it wasn't by the Sanhedrin. Look who it was by, a maidservant, one who has no authority. You know, it's their contrasting authority, like you think about, it's like a janitor being compared to a CEO, not knocking janitors at all. You see, here there was no trial, no jury, only her, and she has zero authority, and yet she has accused Peter of being with Jesus. It's likely that she said you also were with him because according to the gospel of John, John, the disciple, was there, and he was known by the high priest. Peter was accused of being a follower, and look how he responded. Verse 68, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. So out of a love for himself and his personal safety, he denied Jesus. You see, at that moment, Jesus wasn't his supreme treasure. He prioritized self-preservation over self-sacrifice for Jesus. And he was anxious about his safety. And so he left. But look what happened. Verse 69 and 70. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And so the girl persisted, told others, eyes are on Peter, people are murmuring, and he denied Jesus once again, where he disavowed fellowship with Jesus. He was trying to distance himself from Jesus because he didn't want to suffer like Jesus. Well, time has passed. Peter thought he was safe, but he was questioned once again. It says, after a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You see, Peter did something different this time. He invoked a curse upon himself. Like, God, kill me if I am lying. I don't know this man. You see, Peter was committed to his safety. He would deny the Christ, the very Christ who he confessed, the very one who he loved, he would deny. You see, in that moment, Peter had one goal, save his life. He heard the rooster crow, recalled Jesus' words, and it happened as Jesus predicted and when Jesus predicted. You see, the one who said that he wouldn't desert or deny Jesus has done both. And here we see that his fleshly confidence led to his fall. And beloved, this should sober us. An apostle denied Jesus. You see, we're not above the temptation to self-preservation. But we would even deny Jesus to maintain it. You see, if we cherish safety 
the approval of man or comfort, then we would sacrifice everything to get it. We would even sacrifice Jesus to maintain it. Because we live in this body of flesh, we all struggle with this temptation. So the question for you to consider is when are you most tempted to deny Jesus? And why? What is the context? Is it when you're around family, friends, coworkers? You see, this would be good to discuss with one another and to pray for one another that we don't do this. And another question for us to consider are what ways might we deny Jesus? You see, we may or may not be as explicit as Peter was in the denial. I likely believe that we would deny Jesus in more subtle ways. Ways like when at work, you know, if a coworker asked you, what did you do this past weekend? You give a list of things, but you never mention church. Why is that? Or you silent after a friend or a coworker has confessed their beliefs that are contrary to the Christian faith. You don't say anything because you know that it would be an awkward conversation. Or you're silent about the exclusivity of Christ when there's an opportunity to speak on it. Or you never tell a family member or your closest friends that you have become a Christian. You see, these scenarios and countless others, they have one main theme in common. The fear of man over the fear of God. You see, in those moments, our aim would be to serve self and please man than to serve and please God, our Father, or Jesus, our Savior and Lord, who bought us with his blood. You see, the reality is the fear of man is real and it's enticing. Scripture says that it is a snare. And it's something that we all struggle with in varying degrees and in varying ways. If you're plagued by it, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is to confess it to other members. Ask members to pray for you in this. And a good resource to read is Dr. Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. Because that's exactly what's happening when we fear man. We're making people huge and we're making the almighty God small. You see, the reality is, Jesus will have no undercover followers. See, we don't follow Jesus in secret. We publicly confess him. This happened in the baptism that we've undergone when we placed our faith in him. We publicly confess him in the Lord's Supper as we take it together. Our gatherings are public gatherings. We are to be a people who publicly confess the Lord Jesus. In fact, Jesus makes known in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. You see, he will have no undercover followers. You see, the Son of God, he publicly suffered for our sins and sanctified us, and so we are to publicly confess him and bear his disgrace. You see, one of the things that we see in this section 
is that denying Jesus may buy us a moment's ease, but it doesn't produce joy or Yeah, it doesn't produce joy, only sorrow. Look at Peter. And he broke down and wept. You see, he was sorrowful that he sinned. There's joy in obedience even when it hurts. But there is no joy in disobedience. Only sorrow, guilt, uneasiness, and regret. See, when have you ever sinned and then rejoiced in it that you sinned? It's never worth it. You see, if like Peter, you've denied Jesus, then may you be like Peter and repent of that sin. You see, our God is a God who forgives and who restores when we repent. Jesus' blood has atoned for that sin. God has mercy for this sin. Even as we sung in the song, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. You see, in this section, we see that both Jesus and Peter were questioned, and yet they responded differently. On trial, Jesus, he confessed the truth, trusted God, and sought to please God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 would describe it this way. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Where is Peter? When he was questioned, he lied in fear, denied Jesus, and even rejected Jesus to save his own life. And the question is, why do you see these contrasting responses? Well, we must contrast the previous section once again. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus persistently prayed and Peter persistently slept. In this section, contrast their aims. Jesus' aim was to please the Father and fulfill Scripture. Peter's aim was to please and save himself. You see, beloved, if our focus is on saving our lives and pleasing ourselves, then we will follow Jesus. And we will follow Peter in denying Jesus. But if our focus is on pleasing the Lord, then we will follow him in praying, watching, denying ourselves, and being faithful amidst trials. See, because the reality of the fear of man is so real, we need the body. There are times when we are weak and we need that encouragement. As we sung earlier, we need to remind one another that Jesus is worthy. Because if we suffer with him, then we will reign with him. Beloved, may we follow our Lord and be faithful unto death. Let's pray.